Welcome to a Musician's Life podcast. This podcast features interviews with a diverse group of musicians in different fields of the music industry, and my intent is that the audience will gain something from each guest story. This episode features my conversation with Ruby Rose Fox. Ruby is a Boston-based singer-songwriter and activist. She leads a powerhouse nine-piece band that features her background vocalist, The Glorious Steinems. Her album, Domestic, was released in 2016 to critical acclaim, and she's the recipient of four Boston Music Awards. I sat down with Ruby at her studio in Cambridge, Mass. over Christmas break. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in the podcast app and leave a review. Also, please consider making a donation to this podcast on our homepage at www.andrewhalljones.com. You'll see a link for A Musician's Life. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at amusiciansLifePodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at MusicianLifePod. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Here's my conversation with Ruby Rose Fox. So, Ruby, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me. So, so let's start with some basic biographical information. Where'd you grow up? Um, so I grew up in upstate New York mm-hmm. in a, town, a city called Binghamton. Okay. Um, Rod Serling was born there and worked there, who created the Twilight Zone. Okay. And <laughs> uh, sh- basically took his entire life money and put it into the arts. So I had hmm. a great arts education as a kid. Interesting. Because of Rod Serling. In, in your house, were your parents musical at all? They were, actually. My yeah. dad played trumpet and my mom played violin. Okay. Not in any... I mean, they just played instruments like people in the old days used to play instruments. Like somebody played something and yeah. then you get around the piano and play on Christmas. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. But they weren't musicians by any right any means but there was music happening in the house you, yeah you saw it happen yeah when you were up. um and then what was your first instrument what did you start playing my first instrument i would say would be my voice yeah be and i started really young uh-huh. and asked my mom for a microphone when i was probably five because i had heard roy orbison on the radio yeah. i had taped it off the radio yeah and started basically karaokeing my way around the house right putting on performances but my first i guess my first instrument was the violin because i was forced to play it and then clarinet like in middle like yeah yeah. and then my real hard one instrument was saxophone Hmm. because they wouldn't they wouldn't let me have a saxophone because all the it was very my band was very gendered Mm-hmm. All the girls played flute. All the girls yeah. played violin. Yeah. All the boys played trumpet. All the boys played saxophone. But I wanted to play saxophone. And because everybody was poor in Binghamton, you didn't ever buy an instrument. You rented Rent it from the school. Yeah. yeah. So they didn't give. They wouldn't give me one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just hated the clarinet all year. And finally, I. Finally, I think I had some. My mom talked to the band teacher, and. Um, he gave me one over the summer and I gave you a saxophone yeah, yeah and then gave me sort of free lessons oh, cool. and then by the next by the next by fall I was so good that I kicked the fifth grader out of the first chair who I had a crush on okay and <laughs> and was really good at it and were you also doing like choral stuff yeah. at the same time always chorus yeah. always yeah usually multiple choruses when you were in middle school, like who were some artists that really started to resonate with you? Well, I mean, the problem was is that my parents were evangelical Christians, mm-hmm. 
So I wasn't allowed to listen to the artists of my middle school time, which was really Green Day, Nirvana, which I think I would have really been into had I been allowed. Yeah. Um, so I was really into AM radio, so I listened to a lot of like Bobby Darren kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh I listen to a lot of musical theater. Yeah. Um, I really love Judy Garland. Yeah. I was, like, thinking back, I was really a dork. Yeah. But I don't know if it was chosen. I mean, I think I just was really limited to what I was allowed to hear. Right. So they were, your parents were okay with AM radio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Because right. it was super duper, like, you know, Goody love songs like from the 50s. Sure. Like, how bad could they be? What did your school offer? Did they offer, like, a concert band, a jazz band, like, all those, yeah. that kind of stuff? Did you audition for the jazz band? Or did you... Oh, God, that's really hard player? to remember. Yeah. I do think I auditioned for the jazz band, but I I always just barely squeezed by. Yeah. Because um, I, wasn't, I wasn't really interested in... I got, I, I got good enough to a certain point, and then I got a little bit disinterested. Uh-huh. And never really figured out how to like adequately solo. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't obsessive enough to be sort of a world class saxophone player. Right. Were you working on it at home? Would you take your instrument home and like practice yeah, it? Yeah, I would practice learn at your home. Parts and... Yeah. Oh, totally. I would learn my parts, but I I think there were a lot of boys in the program that were super competitive, mm-hmm. and they were all jerks, and I just was like not interested in that game. Yeah. So I think it was just like not. An environment I thrived in, yeah, and just became more interested in singing and acting at that time. Right. Yeah. And what about the choral program? Like, uh, so were you just singing like a general chorus, or were there select? So chorus there were two. Or? There was a select chorus and a general chorus, and I got into the select chorus as like a sixth grader, mm-hmm. and it was touring, and we went to different cities, okay. and so yeah, I always. I always like really excelled in chorus and loved it. Yeah. Um, Did you find that to be really rewarding? Yeah. I mean, I'm I was very dyslexic, and mm-hmm. so I wasn't very good at school. Mm-hmm. So to be good at something, like uh, remarkably better than other kids by just like what to me felt like no effort. Yeah. Um, was so important to I think my self esteem at the time because sure, I yeah. could. I could be special at something, right. and so me in chorus and like a big group of kids, I could shine, right, which was right. really fun. And what about um, music outside of the school? Were you, was there like any music at church, or like were you still was there music at home happening, or with friends? Well, there was always music at church, always. So yeah, that was a big part. I mean, again, my parents were evangelical, so. Mm-hmm. And were you like? enjoying participating in that music were you like singing solos yeah. or playing uh, yeah everything yeah, yeah I was I was playing solo I was singing and performing solo every once in a while yeah um, there was like a Christian music bookstore that we would go get you know Christian music Christian at music from, right? yeah that yeah. I would sing in church so yeah I haven't even thought about that for god so and long. I'm curious about like your relationship with like stage fright if mm-hmm. that's something you have today or had when you were a kid or like came out uh, eventually like we were able to get over it at some point yeah um and like I'm curious do you remember being like nervous when you would stand up in front of the church to sing or 
I think, I mean, I think I've always had a level of nervousness singing. I remember singing at like the Oakdale Mall for, I had a private voice teacher Mm -hmm. when I was like seven or eight and he had me sing around the holidays Mm -hmm. at the Oakdale Mall and remember being nervous. But I wanted to sing so bad all the time Mm -hmm. in front of people that it didn't matter that Mm -hmm. I felt nervous. It was just like... My, I just noticed my heart pumping, but I never thought about it as an issue just because it's all I wanted to do. Right, right. It wasn't like something that was standing in your way. No, no. It was just like a side effect of right. whatever <laughs> was happening. Right. Yeah. And um, what about like music theater in like your middle or high school? Like, was that something that you had access to? Yeah, it, it was something that was there. I never really got into the parts or plays that I wanted to I think yeah. I got one really good role my like senior year of high school uh-huh. um, but you know did a lot of music I did you know I did music camps I did theater camps right so yeah yeah and I'm curious like if you can put your finger on like one who was your first great teacher like musically oh that's such a good question I mean, I think it was my first voice lesson teacher. Mm-hmm. Who the taught guy me. had you sing at the yeah. yeah. I mean, he taught me intervals, mm-hmm. how to hear intervals. And how old were you? Would you seven. Say? Yeah, seven, eight. yeah. So, and I still, I teach my kids that I teach. Yeah. Like, some of the stuff I learned when I was that, like, from him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how long did you study with him for? A couple of years. Throughout high school, would you say your experience with, like, popular music was the same, where it was, like you were still more interested in like the Roy Orbison like kind of well classic stuff or I had moved to Binghamton New York to Brookline which means I was about two grades to Brookline Massachusetts yeah yeah which means I was about two grades behind um I mean I when did what year was that for you that was uh nine gosh or like what year in high school were you Uh, um freshman oh freshman okay so I had come into this totally different world and as a freshman? As a freshman. And I was literally in English and math two years behind everyone else. Hmm. So I had to drop out of advanced math because I really, to them, like had the math level of a fourth grader. So I ha- I just got thrown into this study hall and, some, and this kid named Mark Stern like tapped me on the back and he, was, he whispered, he was like, I heard, you, I heard you play saxophone. And I was like, I do. And he was like, show up at this guy's house on this blah, blah, blah. And he like made sure I came. Mm-hmm. And turns out it was this like punk ska band that needed a saxophone player. And I sang, and from that point on, I sang in this ska band. Oh. I mean, they didn't even know I could sing. Right. They needed a saxophone player and they right. thought I was cute. So, so I sang with them until I was 22. Wow. Yeah. From your freshman yeah. year. Yeah, so my musical taste really got expanded from them right. because I was really into traditional ska. Um, I got exposed to punk and indie rock, and I mean, by joining that band, I just my whole world was opened up from sort of listening to Jam at ninety four five to indie music. Right. So and so. What was the name of that band? It was called Mass Hysteria. Mass Dot yeah. Hysteria. Yeah, okay. And um, <laughs> so how serious was that band? Like, were you rehearsing yeah. frequently? And every week. To play, if, okay. At least every week. Yeah. 
and we played the Knitting Factory. We played Down. Bowery Ballroom. Yeah. We we played with the Scatolites. We played with the Slackers, and we were like children. Yeah. I remember coming home at like two in the morning when I was like a sophomore in high school because we played Lansdowne Street. Right. Like it was such a cool thing. How big was that band? Like how many members were in that band? Nine. So it was a big horn. It was horns. between eight and 11 always. Right. So there were like th- always three horns. So full r- rhythm section. Yeah. Full, yeah. yeah. And Which, you were the lead singer? Yeah. Hence why I have such a huge band. Right. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and um, for that band, were you writing at all? I wrote, I only wrote two songs that whole time. That whole time. Yeah. Okay. So no. Okay. So that, um, so that was, sounds like that was a constant for you from your life from freshman year until you said like 22. Um, so I'm curious, apart from that in high school, like, were you writing original music at all at that point or? No. I mean, I had written like maybe two, three songs. Okay. And were you playing piano at all? I to? was playing around, yeah. but no. And I didn't guitar either. Yeah. No no sort of a... Co- I never played an accompanying instrument. Yeah. What do you even yeah, call them? Company, yeah. yeah, which is so crazy because I was a singer. Right. And I, I didn't have anything that I could play chords with. Right. Which is so weird right. to me. And were you <laughs> taking, like, would, at Brookline High, did they have... I assume it was the high school? Yeah. Public high school? Yeah. Did they have, like, uh, music theory or, like, any classes? They did. Like I took music theory, which I bombed. Uh-huh. And they had... A, I mean, they had everything. I mean, yeah. and I was in everything I could possibly yeah. take. Yeah. Um, and I also studied at New England Conservatory privately. Okay. So, was that the program that they do on, like, Saturday mornings? Um... There was a choir I was in, and there was also private instruction. I was studying opera with a teacher there. Okay. Yeah. Cool. What was one of the first concerts that you saw that really had an impression on you that really like blew your mind, that really knocked you out? Oh, goodness gracious. I mean, probably the Slackers when I was like 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Where, where was that, do you think? I think it probably was like Middle East down, mm-hmm. but it was like packed yeah i mean there were probably 500 kids there yeah and it was just like you're just in a sea of people and there was like incredible energy in the room and they were like rock stars and the you you had the cd and you probably listened to each song a thousand times and when they played it it was like incredible to hear it live Mm -hmm. yeah so it was probably it was probably a ska show that was my first like show experience really right when you started to think about going to college did you consider doing music or something else or were you balancing that decision yeah i mean i remember it was between berkeley or emerson mm-hmm. and i remember my my drummer of this ska band was kind of like you have to choose you don't have time you have to choose one or the other and I think because I had done so mu- so much music as a kid, mm-hmm. I just needed to explore this acting thing. Mm. And because it was also like a dual passion. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's what I went to Emerson went for. To Emerson I have for, an okay. acting degree. Oh, <laughs> yeah. okay, cool. Yeah. And so, and you continued to play with the band throughout that time? For uh, two of those years. Yeah. And then we split up. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... 
I'm curious at Emerson, did you do any like the recording stuff or like anything? nothing? Nothing. I mean, like I cut off music. Acting. I cut music out of my life. I stopped going to shows. Yeah. I didn't even. I didn't sing. No one knew I could sing. Hmm. Um. I didn't do musicals. Nothing. Straight acting. Straight acting, like cool. vodka. Can you talk a little bit about your life, like post college? And were you st- you continued to live in Boston, or where were yeah. you living? I continued to live in Boston, and I did uh, mainly straight theater, which was always the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a lot of Shakespeare and a lot of just independent plays. Um, and the uh, evolution of that took me to writing a one-woman show that was produced right around the corner at Green Street mm-hmm. from here. Um, and that was the first time I had written anything. Mm-hmm. Like, I had... Like we were talking about before, I didn't really write music and I didn't write theater. Mm-hmm. So using my own words as an actor was like a really crazy idea. Mm. Um, Did you star on the show? Or is it, yeah, I yeah, was, the, was one a, the one woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and so that kind of changed everything. Like the idea that I could use language. And it was a super weird one woman one puppet show with like very Beckett like language and I remember people really liking it but knowing that I was not innately a playwright and that oh gosh how do I say this yeah that that I wasn't called to be a playwright and that there was something blocking whatever message I was trying to get to the audience despite the fact that I felt like it went well mm-hmm. Um, and at the time I was living in this house with a lot of women and we started a night called soup. And so I started playing these little songs on my, on my acoustic guitar that I had for a Broadway callback or something. Mm -hmm. And that's when it all sort of exploded into what this is today, which is, um, yeah, I started writing these little songs and people just were like, I, I could see in their faces that something was being transmitted mm-hmm. and their eyes would open really big and they'd lean forward and then afterwards they'd be like, you have to do that again. or I w-. Like, it was just an excitement that I felt like I had always wanted in the theater mm. or a connect, an emotional connection that yeah. I had been really hungry for for so many years. So can you talk a little bit about... Um the experience of like writing the songs for your first time and like how that kind of translated into yeah. what's happening now. I mean, it, it from that moment to now could not have been more incremental and slow. Like every, every there was no leap. There was always a step. So mm-hmm. it was like I wrote a song and then I wrote another one and then I wrote another one. And then I found a couple guys to play with me, and then, and then I found a couple different guys to play with me, and then um, Amin produced my first EP, and you know, so there there were growing pains and 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 it was really incremental. Mm-hmm. Like I think people think that there was some like amazing jump. Right. To, to whatever success I've had. Right, right. But ev- at every level, there was a step. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And when did you start to take these songs out into public and play? 
probably. Oh, goodness. Well, my first show was Valentine's Day six years ago. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in Boston? Or? Yeah, at the Lizard Lounge. Oh, cool. Um, and so it was the first time I had, you know, asked musicians to come and learn the songs that Amin had produced. Right. So I, the, the songs were produced before a band ever played them. Right. Um, which was really exciting. And I had missed playing for so long because of, I was in this band as a yeah, kid. Yeah. So I knew how to put a band together. I knew yeah. what being in a band was really like, you know, like in my DNA. Yeah. Um, so doing that thing was not hard because I already knew how to do it. Right. Um, yeah. Does that answer Yeah, your it does. And then, so once you played that gig, did that kind of put it back in your head that you really wanted oh, to yeah. pursue it? Oh, yeah. Because it sold out on the yeah. first show. And because all my friends showed up from sure. this little event that I we had been doing, because yeah. they were so thrilled that I had put, finally put a band together, right? Um, and that feeling of uh, I don't know purpose was really clear, right? Because before that, I was sort of really lost and thought I was going to be a Buddhist chaplain, and to have something where I could wake up every day. And be like, I know I am on the planet mm-hmm. was so thrilling. Yeah. That from that point on, I just was like, okay, this is the thing. And I'm going to yeah. wake up every day and do that thing. Yeah. And so, so what was the plan? So were you uh, like trying to write more or like record yeah. more or? All of the above. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had like a master plan. Yeah. And just wrote it all out and was like, these are the things I need. I need a website. I need. Uh, press pictures I need right. um, I need a full band I need a place to rehearse right. I need I mean I just laid it all out and I just checked them off as I as I figured it out and is that first is that EP that I mean produced is that the first EP that you can see like on iTunes or yeah did that sound yeah. Like? yeah so domestic was your is your first full length mm-hmm. record yeah um, and I mean that first EP I feel like I literally those were the, some of the first songs I ever wrote. Yeah. So to me, it's just like not quite the sound. It's just what came out of me with an acoustic guitar right. from the beginning. Right. Um, but I wouldn't say it's like a artistic statement. I think I was just like getting my sea legs on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So let's talk a little about the process of making domestic. Can you tell me a little bit about? the financing of that record and um, how you were able to use Pledge Music to help some of that? Yeah, sure. So we, I'm trying to think of when it was in the process. I think it was, actually, no, it was about four months before we started recording. Mm -hmm. And the campaign, I think, lasted about six months. And we were able to fund about a fourth of the cost of the record. Mm-hmm. And I think another fourth was my personal money. Mm-hmm. And then another fourth was one insanely generous fan mm-hmm. who probably sent me about $6,000. Wow. And um, the rest was like just what we made at shows. What was the process of selecting a producer for that yeah. record? So firstly, um, my co-writer, David, Brophy um, wanted to produce it. And okay, so you were already writing together? Yeah. Okay. And we had created, I mean, he had done a ton of pre production work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in terms of the fact that like most of it was already done before we went in the studio we knew exactly what we were gonna do for the mm. most part yeah because he had already kind of created these sort of ideas of production yeah so it seemed weird to not have him produce it yeah and i trusted him and i knew that he would give me a voice in yeah. production and yeah. that if i literally said anything i wanted he would listen to me and either we could work it out or or he would change it. Mm-hmm. So that's why I really wanted him to produce. Right. I, I knew I'd have an equal voice. And I didn't feel that way with everyone else. Yeah, okay, great. Um, I'm curious about the album um, as an entire like concept and piece of artwork. Yeah. So um, I'm wondering if the concept for the videos came at the same time that you were like writing the songs yeah or if they came later after you could like listen to the recorded product and like come up with a visual concept for it the videos came after yeah yeah and did so as far as the videos are concerned did you um produce those or did you collaborate with some visual artists who were also or how did that work so the videos were Basically, all me. I worked with a videographer named Roger Metcalf, who just filmed filmed it. And um, but in terms of ideas, costuming, like directing, like directing, producing, it was all me. Okay. So, which was kind of cool and overwhelming, but uh, yeah. But it was definitely my brainchild, babies. There's these like very weird videos that came to life yeah um were definitely not not outsourced for that for those yeah Yeah. um so but they they felt done like i felt like once a video was made for a song i felt like that song was done yeah like the first one we did was the dance of frankenstein Mm -hmm. and once that video was done i felt like that piece of work was finished right and it was so great to feel like an artistic idea was completely thought and lived. Right, you let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then how about the art direction for like the, the, the album itself? Yeah. Was that you as well or do you have someone you worked with? So that was, um, that was a product of, my sister is doing a PhD in surrealist history um, at University of Chicago and she had done a exhibition on this surrealist artist named Merritt Oppenheim and she sent me this picture that she had taken on her phone and it was just so cool. Mm. It was this woman on a table with food all over her and there was this painting in the background and I was just in the middle of trying to figure out what the album artwork was and I was like, that's it. Except I'm going to be the woman. Yeah. So I pretty much, I even the, the, the graphics mm-hmm. are actually an enormous painting that I painted mm. um, that are scrambled letters. One, the top part says domestic and the bottom part says Ruby Rose Fox, mm-hmm. but all the letters are scrambled so you can't really read them. Right. And so I basically just recreated it. Mm. Um, and it's based on this art piece that Merritt Oppenheim did. Um so that w- that was also me. Yeah, and I'm curious also like when you're on stage if you feel like there's you're like being yourself 
or if there's like some kind of like persona you're like portraying to the audience and like how you like balance that yeah i just think it's probably it's probably just an exaggerated form of myself i tend to be like really i don't know sometimes i can be super goofy and sometimes i can be super focused and channeled and dark and I don't know. I think that it's it's definitely not I'm not trying to create a character yeah. at all. Yeah. I just try to let myself be myself. And but I think the energy of a show makes any person or performer amplified. Yeah. By how many people are in the room. When I think of the comparisons for you like a lot of the people I compare them to are people that do like have personas. Yeah. And then I'm like thinking about you like and swimming pool video and like <laughs> doing this kind of weird but very cool stuff yeah and like you like but then i like also see you like with like kids yeah it's like that's not the same person <laughs> swimming pool video, but then it is but yeah yeah, I mean? yeah, so, yeah 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 anyway we'll probably, I'll probably cut all that out <laughs> two rules when I started making music mm -hmm. which I think definitely relate to making the record because I use them which is that you know every show every video every thing that I make I strive to make it better than the last thing even if it's if I succeed or not I need to try right and which makes you ask questions like how can I make this better or you know, how can I make my merch box better? Or how can I engage my audience more effectively? Yeah. Um, and then the other rule was that there's no comparing to anyone else, mm. ever. Um, so during the creation of Domestic, uh, you know, that same rule applied as we were making it. So every time we made a song, I learned something. Right. And applied it to the next song where you recorded and the next song. Um, and that I really needed it to be of a higher quality, in my opinion, mm. of all the work I had created before. Yeah. Um, so just pushing myself to really be awake and aware and present while I was making it. Yeah. And not comparing it to any music I've ever heard before. Just right. make the thing. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, excellent. I was actually just listen to it today like it it's it's a really fully realized piece of artwork and i think i love to listen love listening to it for that reason it's almost like when you listen on vinyl it's almost like the first side it's like one long song or something and the same thing on the second side it's like yeah fully realized and and really excellent so i'm curious about like distributing a record in 2016 like well, like, what was your idea? I mean, you obviously know people are going to download it. Yeah. iTunes, like, vinyl, copies, CDs. Like, how do you navigate that? I mean, it's a... Can I swear? Yeah. It's like a shitstorm. Yeah. It's so confusing. No one knows. Um, digital sales are not worth thinking about. You're probably going to cost... I mean, if you're lucky, you'll make $1,000 a year on digital music yeah does that like mean streaming and streaming downloads that, all that, everything yeah. 
um, it's almost like not worth even thinking about. Right. Um, the only thing that's a commodity is vinyl. It's yeah. the only thing people value. Yeah. Um, CDs are paperweights. Most people don't even have CD players anymore. Yeah. Um, so it was really confusing. And yeah, still gives me anxiety to, to think about because, um, I mean, I, I kept it off Spotify for a good six months because mm-hmm. I felt like there, we had so many backers who gave us money to make the record yeah. that I felt like it was kind of screwed up to just give it away for free right away. I like right. really wanted to, and I still feel this way um, now that we have like a membership service right. um, that it, it really, if there's fans that are really supporting you to give them the music first. Yeah. Um, so we did put it out on Spotify by September, but the full length. Yeah. And people were psyched, but I was like, you know, you, you kind of know who your big fans are because they're the ones who are willing to help you pay for it. Sure. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the subscription or like, I don't know how you, how do you describe that? Yeah. So it's like a member service through our website. Um, and it's just a way for like really big fans to get, get new content before anyone else does mm-hmm. um, fun videos um, basically if you're a member you get all our music free for the rest of your life in whatever form we're putting it out on okay um, and you get to hear all the studio tracks before everyone else does you get to see music videos before anyone else does you get to hear weird demos that I make that will never ever see come to day. life yeah um, and some people have like really loved it and some people have been like that's not your best song and I'm like I know it's a demo right. it's kind of the point yeah. <laughs> it's whatever came out of my mouth right um, but it's been really cool so far I mean we we don't have enough members to yet make the band sustainable by any means mm-hmm. but it's at least a system that brings in money yeah you know like we recorded one song last month which and our members paid for it. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I just feel like, you know, I hate when people say this, but you know, the definition of insanity is like doing the same thing over and over that doesn't work. Yeah. And so I felt a little bit like who's going to make a new model? Yeah. And I just was like, well, let me do... I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know how sustainable it is or whether people will like it and continue to be members. I hope they will. Right. Um, But I just needed to do something new because the old model doesn't work and a new one hasn't been developed that that helps everyone in general yet. So my only thought was, let me do something else that feels like it makes sense. Right. So can you talk a little bit about playing live with the nine-piece band versus playing duo and like yeah. how that's been going? Sure. Um, so yeah, I've played with a really big band for a long time, and then this last year it's just been me and Dave on the road. Um, and I've been really enjoying stripping it down. Um, we both have vocal pedals and trying to create the biggest sound we can. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I I really, I think because of my ska days, I really like the idea of traveling in a pack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I love having a huge band. Um, 
but it's also sort of freeing to know that I can show up at a club with a keyboard and play my own songs. Right. So a defining characteristic of your live show with the bigger band is the background singer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious if, like, having that as part of the band was, like, part of your, like, original vision, or is that something that you kind of conceived yeah. of, like, later in the process and what effect that had on your music? So when I started, I started making demos on GarageBand, mm-hmm. and I couldn't, I mean, in the beginning, I could barely play guitar, and I couldn't play piano, so I would make a lot of chords with my voice. Mm-hmm. So the Gloria Sams came from, like, the fact that I wanted my songs to sound like my demos. Mm-hmm. So I ended up with, like, a little, creating a choir of women, basically, singing back up for me. Yeah. Um... But I think it became more of a political idea as, you know, I realized that the sort of sexism that I was up against and the stories of women around me who were struggling. And when we were trying to figure out, like, should we call them something? We just were all reading a Gloria Steinem book and decided that they were going to be the Gloria Steinem, which is really fun. Yeah. But then I think over time, just very organically, that turned into a sort of empowerment brand that I think a lot of people have asked me if I've crafted it. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't at all been that. Right. So it was a really organic yeah. process. Yeah. And I think that it has encouraged me and the, the Steinems to be as brave as possible. And as outspoken as possible about our, our feelings and thoughts about what it feels like to be a woman in 2016 and mm-hmm. and supporting other women is, is a huge aspect of what I think the band is about. Mm. Um, and I think about this record as like a really pretty dark, mm. but I've heard a lot of a lot of voices coming back at me telling me that just listening to it makes them feel powerful Mm. which is like more than i could ever hope for (laughs) yeah yeah so i think that's a big part of like what this band has become more than just like oh cool singer songwriter sure um yeah and um yeah i would add that um and maybe i'm gonna edit this but i would just add that like i feel like there's always something powerful about like and amazing about like playing or seeing a band or playing in a band with three female powerhouse background vocalists Mm -hmm. it's kind of like i don't know like driving a corvette or something (laughs) it's just like it's just that's like there's this excellent like extra power that it brings oh yeah Um, it was always like a dream of mine as a younger musician like to have a band to be in a band with like that kind of thing like and like for me, when I first played with like Jenny D and the Delinquents, it was like, oh, here it is. Like this is so awesome. Oh, totally. Like, and then your band, the same. Like it was powerhouse. And can you talk a little bit about the um, like the Queen treatment only concept, oh, yeah. which I think is fantastic. Like how did that come about, and what is it? What are you doing with <laughs> oh, it? Oh man, well that started as a like text message between me and the Steinums. Mm-hmm. I was like. I'm never calling him again. He treats me like shit. And Colleen was like, yeah, hashtag queen treatment only. And I was like, I love that. So we were just in our text storms. We were just 
making jokes about queen treatment. Yeah. And so I had this, uh, I was presented with the idea of creating my own show. So I decided to bring in, you know, eight female fronted acts and call it queen treatment only festival. Right, right. (laughs) And uh, it was actually super, super successful. And all the sort of, ideas I had about women connecting and empowering each other and supporting each other really manifested itself in at this show Hmm. and it was just fantastic uh and you did that can you talk a little bit more like you did that at the Larkham Theater yeah the Larkham Theater and you said you had eight acts yeah as well as the group you played oh so it must have been seven acts plus us yeah yeah. so yeah um and it was from it was all different genres. It was yeah. like there was like a um, like almost metal in band. Um, there was folky music. There was rock music. There was um, jazz. Uh, Jen Kearney, Jen who's Kearney, like yeah. more on like the jazz funk side, yeah. and every band, every group was so 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 different. Yeah. Um, but it was really high quality music and. Mm. You know, there were a couple of young... There was some college girls in the audience. There were some young, young girls in the audience. Awesome. And it just felt like... It was felt like an offshoot of, like, making a difference. And, right. Um, helping women see themselves. I mean, I think for me, the biggest problem with music was that... Yeah, there were, like, famous people like Madonna, but I saw very few women around me doing what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually none. I never had a person like that who was in the flesh. Um, so that was sort of my yeah. hope for the idea. Yeah, excellent. And so, and like, what's next for you? Like, what's coming up in the next year or so? When oh, goodness. On? Well, hopefully a new album. Yeah. We got two songs under our belt, so. Yeah. I don't know, eight to go. Uh, um, do you think you'll do you'll approach it in a similar fashion with like maybe another pledge campaign or hopefully through the subscription or the members or members. Yeah. I think we're going to have to, but I'm hoping not. Yeah. Um, I, the idea of crowdfunding just uh, makes me, uh, like make that sound. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really hard. And, and I, so I would much rather just people pay like a tiny bit a month mm-hmm. and just be a part of our um, subscribership yeah. than um, do it but we we may have to um, hopefully hopefully not yeah yeah cool so. well uh, Ruby thank you so much for taking the time to do this I really appreciate it yeah thank you for having me This episode was produced and edited by me, Andrew Jones. The theme song was a collaboration between Matt Pendergast and myself. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in the podcast app and leave a review. Also, please consider making a donation to this podcast on our homepage at www.andrewhalljones.com. You'll see a link for A Musician's Life. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at musicianslifepodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at musicianlifepod. 
You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening. And remember, time with music is time well spent.